0: Bum bum ba bum bum bam dum, bum bum ba bum bum ba bum bum ba dum, bum bum ba dum, bum bum ba dum, bum bum ba dum, dum 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 bum 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 dum dum bum dum dum bum dum 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 bum dum 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 You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson.
1: I'm Brad Gullickson. And
0: each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. In this episode, we're jumping into the family station wagon, the space and time traveling station wagon, with Sue Storm and Reed Richards, as seen in the Fantastic Four Volume 4, issues 1 through 16, mostly written by Matt Fraction and mostly illustrated by Mark Bagley. And we're applying the four tendencies by Gretchen Rubin to their relationship woes.
1: So right before we hit record on this episode, Lisa and I were like, what's our banter going to be? We don't really have anything going on in our lives right now other than this (laughs) podcast. And then I check my phone and my buddy Sean has messaged me. And Richard Donner has passed away today. Yeah. Man. And while he lived a long life, 91 years of age, like I, we have to take a moment and just celebrate how much this creator gifted to our lives.
0: Well, if you think about it, a lot of us were introduced to comic book movies first. Uh, right,
1: yes. Before
0: comic books. Yes. And uh comic book movies would not be the same without Richard Donner.
1: Uh absolutely true. Superman the movie was my first experience with Superman the character. Uh, I rewatched that film every couple of years. Uh it's if you if you go back and watch that movie like the amount of respect that he gives to Schuster and Siegel's character and the comic itself you know the movie opens with the pages of a comic book being flipped and you know and the camera zooming in on Metropolis and like that that was just not what the vibe was in 1979 regarding comic books you know we were still dealing with the post Batman 66 style like comic books were camp comic books were for kids and Richard Donner was like no 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 this is this is mythology. This is serious business.
0: Yeah, but not serious, like, not fun. No, no, like no. It's, his, Just his super, not
1: dismissible.
0: Yeah, it's super earnest. Yes in its storytelling and never apologizes for being a comic book movie. Right,
1: right, right. And so, you know, from Superman the movie, we got Superman 2, and of course, there was some shenanigans behind the scenes and that film never quite was what Richard Donner wanted it to be, although what we got with Richard Lester coming on board afterwards, I I like that movie quite a bit. Still entertaining. Still quite entertaining. And, you know, his comic book, uh career doesn't end with Superman the movie. Uh, you know, he was a producer on the HBO series Tales from the Crypt. That is, without a doubt, one of the best comic book adaptations, certainly in the television world. He was one of the producers, along with his wife, Lauren Shuler Donner, of the original X-Men films. He gave Jeff Johns and Kevin Feige their first jobs as his assistants. So, you know, like, as we know, comic book cinema today, it exists because of Richard Donner. Just
0: coincidentally, during the pandemic, we actually covered a lot of Richard Donner's oeuvre, because I had never seen the Lethal Weapon films, so I watched all of those, rolled directly into Maverick. So good. Which I think is an underappreciated gem. How dare I be this many years old and have never seen it before? Yeah,
1: I mean, I think, you know, (laughs) those films now have the shadow of Mel Gibson, the human on those films, but like those films are glorious, Mm -hmm. right? They're
0: super fun. And if
1: you can get beyond the Mel Gibson of it all, they they live up.
0: So let's swerve, let's swerve away from the Mel Gibson and talk a little Goonies. Goonies is a childhood favorite of many. You know,
1: I was always a monster squad kid, but to (laughs) deny Goonies would make me a liar. That movie is iconic and means so much to so many people.
0: I know what my favorite Richard Donner movie is. Oh yeah? It's a Christmas classic.
1: Oh Scrooge
0: Scrooge, Scrooge. A, like that's one of ours like annual we got to watch this
1: Every yeah, so like every 2 years we watch Superman every year we watch Scrooge
0: and I cry at the end every single time yeah
1: yeah if we're if we're talking Charles Dickens Christmas Carol adaptations the two best Lisa are Scrooge
0: what, and the Muppets here? Christmas Carol that's right Michael
1: Caine's <laughs> uh, Ebenezer is like my favorite Ebenezer that's right so oh gosh what a great pull Scrooge but like Richard Donner, You know, even later on, you know, he was a filmmaker who just kept on pushing out films one after the other. I dig his, you know, conspiracy theory um, as well. I've never seen it. We should should watch it. It's got a great evil Patrick Stewart performance in it. Um, It is another Mel Gibson movie. Uh, (laughs) There's also 16 Blocks with Mose Def and um, Bruce Willis. That was
0: his last film. I've got the IMDb page up. So that's 2006.
1: That is a film where, like, Bruce Willis has to get Mosdef to the end of the line to the, to the courthouse, which is like sixteen blocks away. And between him and the courthouse are all these evil cops trying to execute him.
0: That sounds like a riot. It is.
1: It's it's a it's a gauntlet. It's a it's a great little gauntlet movie. And we don't have enough gauntlet movies. We need more gauntlet movies now that I How think about fun.
0: it. How fun! So I love reflecting on someone's life and career. And smiling a little bit through the sadness. Yeah, you know,
1: Lisa and I, we do a lot of uh, film marathons. We like put little showcases together. We completed a Martin Short one recently. We're in the middle of a Michael J. Fox one, Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's a little hard to get through those early Michael J. Fox movies. (laughs) Some of them are not so good. Uh, I think a Richard Donner-a-thon would make for a great watch. And it would require us to go back and watch a lot of old classic television because Richard Donner got his start doing like like a bunch of cowboy shows, you know. He did a
0: bunch of uh, banana splits, adventure hours.
1: <laughs> yes, he did. I like. He did some Man from Uncles. Uh, did what was? Did he do Wanted Dead or Alive? The Steve McQueen show. Like he's been around a long time, 91 years old. Yes, he did. Yeah. So like if you loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Leonardo DiCaprio's Rick Dalton character is kind of doing a spin off of early TV, Steve McQueen. And that bounty loss show was very much Wanted Dead or Alive. So if you like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, go back and watch some Wanted Dead or Alive and start with the Richard Donner stuff.
0: I'm so bummed he missed out on the monkeys, but he did some Gilligan's Island. Oh,
1: wow. I and did Perry that. Mason. Perry Mason. Oh, yeah, so we should go back and watch his TV. I think that would be so much fun.
0: I second that emotion. He did the Twilight Zone. Did uh, you already say that? I,
1: I did not, but yeah. Uh, what is that Twilight Zone episode? He did like one or two. It's a he really good six,
0: one. Sweetheart. He did six, sweetheart. He did six? Come Wander With Me, The Brain Center at Whippies. The Jeopardy Room, Sounds and Silences, and From Agnes with Love.
1: Oh, so From Agnes with like from Agnes with Love is a great one, yeah. yeah. Oh,
0: and Nightmare at, tw- he did Nightmare at 20,000 Feet.
1: Oh my God, so the Gremlin, the Shatner episode, how did I forget that? That's without a doubt my favorite night, uh, Twilight Zone episode. Yeah. We have posters of that episode all over the place. Richard Donner and Richard Matheson team up, oh my God. Yeah, so an absolute legend. Find some Richard Donner this week, dive into it.
0: We should do maybe a little Richard Donner mini ep or a reel.
1: You know what we should do? We should get Sean Eastridge. Yes. So Sean Eastridge is the buddy who sent me the message earlier today. Uh, He is the biggest Superman fan that I know. Uh We should do a Superman the movie episode with Sean. His podcast, Missing Frames, is exceptional. You should all be subscribed to it. And two years ago, in the same month that Lisa and I started comic book couples counseling, Sean had Richard Donner on his show. It's gotta be one of the last Richard Donner interviews.
0: That's amazing.
1: I'm gonna share that in the notes of this episode. I'm also gonna tweet it out uh, on Twitter and I'll put it out on Instagram and Facebook as well. Uh, Like, if you wanna see what a good dude Richard Donner was, listen to his interview with Sean. Lisa, I think we should get Sean on the phone. We should do a Superman the movie episode.
0: Well, uh, we're putting this out on our mainstream app, so he's really gonna embarrass us if he says no. Yeah,
1: so he's, he, he better <laughs> do it. He better do it. Uh so rest in pictures, Richard Donner. And there's no real easy way to transition from our Richard Donner celebration into our main topic of the day. So we'll, we're just gonna do it. Hard left. Uh right now, Reed and Sue are sitting in our waiting room waiting for their session, their final session with comic book couples counseling, but before we can finalize their analysis, we got to delve into some serious context regarding this week's comic book run.
0: I enjoyed reading these 16 issues Mm -hmm. and spending this time with Reed and Sue, but it is, this is a bizarre run of comics.
1: I mean, yes, that, yes, it's true. Matt Fraction's time on Fantastic Four is utterly fascinating as it seems to jumpstart the writer's final days with Marvel Comics. We've discussed Matt Fraction a few times on this podcast. First, as part of our Peter Parker and Mary Jane series, we broke down his 2008 Sensational Spider-Man annual and discussed how it led into the One More Day Peter MJ Erasure And of course we talked a lot about Matt Fraction during our five episode series on the Image Comics Chip Zdarsky collaboration, Sex Criminals. If you go back to those episodes, you can hear us discuss his history a little more in depth, I believe, but here's your basic details. Matt Fraction's real name is Matt Frickman, but he goes by Fraction because that was the handle he was using on the OG Warren Ellis forum back in the early aughts. His first comics work were for places like IDW and AIT, Planet Lar, and it was his creator- owned work on The Five Fists of Science and Casanova, where he started to gain some serious attention, and he eventually moved on over to Marvel, collaborating with another favorite writer of ours, Ed Brubaker, on books like The Immortal Iron Fist and Uncanny X-Men. Fraction would go on to have sizable runs on The Invincible Iron Man, Punisher War Journal, Thor, and of course, probably our favorite Matt Fraction comic book of all time, Hawkeye. We
0: have to cover that on our podcast.
1: That's that will happen. That will happen. Lisa, Hawkeye has a television show coming out later this year. Yeah, so that's right. You know, let's put let's put a button in it. Fraction came onto Fantastic Four after Jonathan Hickman left the title with issue six one one, or as the common man might call it, six (laughs) eleven. I don't know why I called it six one one.
0: I don't know, buying time.
1: Buying time. Uh, But if I'm being real, Hickman's Fantastic Four is without a doubt our favorite era of Fantastic Four comics. In 2012, however, Marvel did a line-wide relaunch, sort of similar to DC's New 52, but maybe not as canonically revolutionary, called Marvel Now! It was a creator shakeup. Hickman left FF and went over to Avengers. Brian Michael Bendis left Avengers and did all-new X-Men as well as Uncanny X-Men. And Matt Fraction jumped on both Fantastic Four and FF, aka Future Foundation, with Mark Bagley and Mike Allred. The twin titles were a lot of fun and fairly ambitious, launching from the same plot point, but venturing into two totally separate narratives. We're going to go further into the plot details later on in this episode, but the reason for two titles existing was that the Richards family, including Ben Grimm, Johnny Storm, and the kids, Franklin and Valeria, jump into the retrofitted hyperdimensional warship Pestilence to go exploring time and space.
0: Yes, because when I think family fun, I think pestilence.
1: He's my favorite horseman. Uh, They were only supposed to be gone minutes as far as New York City's timeline was concerned, but of course, things don't go according to plan and they're gone for much, much longer. Thankfully, they set up a backup Fantastic Four team consisting of Scott Lang, the Ant-Man, She-Hulk, Medusa from the Inhumans, and Johnny Storm's then girlfriend, Darla, who becomes Miss Thing. While the Richards are away, they try to keep down the fort, AKA the Baxter building, along with its many student inhabitants and their nanny, Dragon Man. Who is a robot? An android. What's a little funky about this relaunch is that no one who started it stuck around to finish it. Just as the series started to reach its end, Matt Fraction left both titles because, and this is the official word, He got pulled away to other creative endeavors, most notably the Inhumanity event in 2013, which was supposed to jumpstart a new Inhuman series. That series never happened. It fell apart over those dreaded creative differences. And once Fraction finished Hawkeye with David Aja, David Aja to uh, us dumb Americans, he never worked with Marvel again. Mark Bagley also left Fantastic Four early. As Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars was heating up, he returned to the Ultimate Comics universe to illustrate the tie-in miniseries Ultimate End alongside his old Ultimate Spider-Man pal, Brian Michael Bendis. So the Marvel now Fantastic Four slash FF era has this weird little cloud over it, and at the time, I never even finished the series because of my frustration with their departure, and also it's clear in Bagley's last few issues that he was really rushing. It just wasn't up to snuff. That being said, I'm so glad we decided to read the whole Megillah here, because while Fraction leaves the book, writer Carl Kessel takes over scripting based on Fraction's plot notes. And you know what? I really like the conclusion to this series, even if it's confusing as hell. And thanks to this podcast and our episodes discussing the early aughts Harley Quinn solo series and the most recent Fantastic Four 40th wedding anniversary one shot, I've become a bit of a Carl Kessel fan. Oh, writer Christopher Sabella also steps in midway through this series to co-script a couple issues. So yeah, while I'll always wonder how this series would have read if Fraction and Bagley could have been given the time and the space, pun intended, (laughs) to complete their arc to their satisfaction, I'm not mad about the comic that we got. And some of my favorite stuff occurs in the Kessel and Raphael Ienko issues. And you know, my final word on this run is how much I love its celebration of the whole Fantastic Four family. It's not about four adventurers. It's about a husband and a wife, their children and their two cocky uncles. And that's the dynamic I adore the most. And it's a dynamic that keeps getting missed when adapting the Fantastic Four into other mediums. The FF early days aren't necessary, sure, but it's here with little Franklin and little Valeria where the saga comes into its own. And yes, I'm gonna be sad to leave these kooky science weirdos behind And I'm also going to be a little sad to move on to another love expert, Lisa, because I think our Fantastic Four Relationship book pairing has been a lot of fun and will stick with me for a bit. Lisa, before we dive into session with Reed and Sue, let's hear how we're going to finish off with our love expert, Gretchen Rubin.
0: Yes, I'm sad too, but I'm sure that uh, my friends and family and (laughs) some of our dear sweet listeners are are excited to hear me talk about something, anything else, because everywhere I go out in the world, I'm like, see that guy in line at the grocery store? He's a questioner, (laughs) look at you, you're so kind, you must be an obliger. (laughs) I've been like completely fixated. But for the last time, we're using Gretchen Rubin's revolutionary concept and book, The Four Tendencies, the four indispensable personality profiles that reveal how to make your life better. Parentheses, and other people's lives better, too. Close parentheses. (laughs) Published in 2017 by Penguin Random House. The four tendencies profile individuals by the way they respond to expectations, inner expectations that we place on ourselves, and outer expectations that others place on us. This places people into four categories, upholders, obligers, questioners, and rebels. We've come a
1: long way since we started with the Storm Richards back on episode 65. And we've stuffed a creator corner in between there, as well as our Loki Walk and Talk Patreon preview. So we've been holding on to the four tendencies and Reed and Sue for a long time, much longer than we anticipated.
0: And in that time, we've determined their tendencies. Reed is an upholder, Sue is an obliger. We've sussed out some of the quirks of their tendencies and we've gotten a good close look at how they use their tendencies to alienate each other when they are in conflict. Oof. Civil War got (laughs) rough for the Fantastic Four. Wife against husband, best friend against best friend, brother-in-law against brother. Actually, it was just most everybody being (laughs) against Reed because Reed is the worst.
1: He's the worst, (laughs) T-dubs.
0: This being our last session with us and all, I thought it would be good to leave these two with a few takeaways to tuck into their boob windows for that <laughs> inevitable rainy day when Reed's upholder tightening has them ironically inflexible and Sue's obliger rebellion has her seeking the loving arms of a certain submariner.
1: Oh man, I am such a boob window defender. Like that 90s era of Fantastic Four is so special to me and I know it's hated by most. And we, we didn't cover it at all on this podcast. Series, and I'm a little sad about that.
0: Not a widely known fact, but on the other side of that boob window. (laughs) Is the negative zone.
1: Oh, no. <laughs> I want to get in that zone. <laughs> oh,
0: Brett, that's how they get you. <laughs> Let's start with how Reed, the upholder, can better support Sue, the obliger. If you say so. <laughs> you may want to take note, sweetheart, because your wife is an obliger.
1: Ooh, scribble, scribble.
0: Obligers are great at meeting outer expectations, so if you let them know that you're counting on them, they will reliably come through. They are always putting their feelers out for what the relationship needs and volunteering to do more to make their relationships better and stronger. They are also super flexible. They're ready and willing to switch up the plan to accommodate others. Where obligers like Sue need support is in meeting their inner expectations. They will often put their own private goals, hopes, and dreams on the back burner if they feel that it doesn't serve the relationship or there is nothing external measuring or monitoring their progress. So what are the ways Reed can better support Sue? It's been a minute, but I've put together a bulleted list.
1: Oh, a bulleted list.
0: But Tao, be curious about Sue's inner expectations. Mm. By engaging in open conversation about what she wants for herself, it creates outer accountability by making her feel like someone else has a stake in her happiness and fulfillment.
1: Be curious about Lisa, okay, okay.
0: Patel! Uh! Give Sue the accountability she's asking for. Hmm. Obligers tend to know themselves, and they'll ask directly for the accountability that they need. Reed needs to be listening and either give her what she's asking for or figure out another way to make it work. Hmm. Patel! Uh! Guard her against obliger rebellion, by making sure she doesn't take too much on. Mm. Obligers will spend their energy on yeah. others until they have nothing left and they just quit.
1: Yeah, that is very you. Yes. Okay, I'm, I'm underlining this <laughs> uh, bulleted note.
0: Reed can encourage her to save some energy either for herself or for something big and unexpected. Patel, uh. hold her accountable for her own self-care. Obligers will either forget or deny themselves self care without some outer accountability to make it happen. Mm. So if Reed notices that Sue is acting a little stressed out, he can go like, hey, I'll hold down the fort, I'll watch the kids out here, how about you go and take some you time, read a book, take a bath? Right,
1: because when you, like, you don't want to attack somebody with accountability because then that invites a defensive response.
0: Yeah, some forms of accountability can feel more offensive. Like, hey, Sue, you're being a real bee right now. How about you go? I mean,
1: it's, all, yeah. So, you, you, you know, in- accountability is important for the obliger, but you have to bring that accountability with some sense of love and <laughs> uh, understanding, empathy.
0: Yeah. Accountability can sound punitive. Yes. Like, hey, if you turn in your library book late, there's going to be a fine.
1: You said you were going to do this and you're not doing that.
0: But accountability is just the idea that somebody else knows and somebody else cares and has a stake in it yeah care so so that's really what accountability can mean to an obliger like hey oh you went to that spin class that you love that's so great you know that kind of thing sure
1: i got it scribble scribble note taken
0: pachow Uh. comfort sue when she feels she's let someone else down Last week we talked about the values of each of the four tendencies, and the value of an obliger is teamwork and duty towards others, and that's just not Reed's values. So because their values are different, Reed may not see letting someone else down as a big a deal as she might, but it's in these instances that she needs the most comfort and understanding. Now that we've covered what Sue needs from Reed, What does Reed need from Sue? As an upholder, he meets inner and outer expectations, so he's actually good. He doesn't need any support ever. Mm. Psyche. When was the last time you used the word psych? (laughs) I didn't even know how to spell it when I put it
1: in the copy. Of course
0: upholders need support. No man is an island, even as he pours buckets and buckets of emotional distance All around himself, all he's doing is getting his own shoes wet.
1: Oh, man, Lisa.
0: Upholders make excellent partners. They value self-command and performance, so they are always looking to better themselves, Mm. and it can be inspiring to be with someone who can set and meet goals.
1: Sure, yeah, I get that.
0: They are great planners, and they're people of their word, so it's rare that they radically change expectations for you at the last minute. Upholders need support in those times that they need to change plans let go of routines, and be flexible. Where obligers have obliger rebellion, where they stop doing anything, upholders have upholder tightening, where they cling to plans and routines that don't make sense anymore Mm. because they are too stressed to stop and reassess what they're doing. Yeah. So how can Sue better support Reed when she can see him locking up?
1: Do we have another bulleted list, Lisa?
0: I'm reloading my finger guns as we speak. Patel, Uh, be curious about Reed's priorities. When an upholder has a choice of conflicting expectations, they'll often go towards the expectation that is the most explicit, not the most important. And by explicit, I don't mean boop. Yeah, yeah, I got it, I got it. By talking through their expectations, upholders can better prioritize which expectations actually need to be met. Patel, Uh, encourage Reed to delegate even if that means creating accountability that he himself would not need. Upholders will often just do everything themselves rather than relying on people of other tendencies that may fail them. Sue could help him talk through what accountabilities he can put in place so that he can more effectively delegate. Mm. Pachow! Help Reed be more flexible when plans and routines need to change, especially when it comes to accommodating others. In Reed's perfect world, everyone would be an upholder who does exactly what they say, exactly the way they say they're going to do it. But when other people fall through or plans fall apart, upholders can tighten up. Sue can use her obliger strengths to talk Reed through how he can keep the integrity of his plan Mm. and still accommodate others' failings. Patel, Uh. remind Reed that not everyone is as smitten with structure as he is. Upholders often make the mistake, as do all the tendencies, of assuming that everyone thinks the way that they mm, do. Sure. Sue can act as a human to upholder translator to help them loosen up on everyone else.
1: Mm. Yeah, I, I, I like that one a lot because, you know, I, well, we've been talking about tendencies. When something when, when I react differently to you, I, I like to explain, like, well, why am I being such a rebel? This mm. is this is what I'm seeing.
0: Where I think this comes to play a lot in the narrative that we're talking about today is that the word vacation. Yeah. So for upholders, <laughs> vacations need to be planned out right. and super structured because Uh, when upholders are feeling listless, they actually feel more stressed out. Right, yeah. Where with Sue and definitely Ben as well, like they need the option of doing nothing and just kind of being spontaneous.
1: And same for Johnny, really.
0: Johnny is an obliger just like Sue. Ben is a questioner. So anytime... Reed puts something else on the itinerary, <laughs> Ben Grimm's knee-jerk reaction is going to be, like, why? Right. Why are we doing this? And it happens a lot. Patow! <clears throat> Comfort Reed when he's upset over making mistakes or breaking expectations. Reed's upholder values are self-command and performance, and a lot of his ego is attached to being Reliable and the best. Yeah, for sure. Again, they have differing values. So while Sue may be able to shrug off making mistakes or letting herself down, those are going to be the times that Reed needs the most comfort. Mm.
1: Is that the last bulleted uh, point, Lisa?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna put these shooters away.
1: Okay. All right. I, this is why we should be doing video because our listeners are missing out on your finger guns and my ability to take a shot. <laughs>
0: Put uh, out, uh, uh. uh, I had two six shooters. And I, I had five points. Imagine
1: myself like Jim Carrey's the mask and his cowboy getup. That's how I see myself. Yeah, right
0: now. I imagine you as Jim Carrey in the mask and your cowboy getup in bed.
1: Oh! Well, <laughs> that's not that's, true! That's not but, for this podcast, Lisa. Fun. This is a PG-13 zone.
0: Just as important as knowing how to support each other is knowing how to ask for support from the other person. You'd think that Reed being married to an obliger would never have to ask for support, but one of the quirks of the obliger tendency is that they can start treating those closest to them as self, and they can prioritize others' needs over the needs of their partner, letting their partner down in the same way that they let down themselves. Hmm. When Reed feels like he needs a little extra support from Sue, he needs to individualize himself and then be specific when it comes to what he needs from her. When Sue needs support from Reed, she also needs to be explicit about her expectations and perhaps make an appeal to his performance as husband and co-parent. It can seem like a low blow to be like, you're being a bad husband right now, but if Sue is not being specific about what her expectations are, she may find herself lower and lower on his list of priorities.
1: And we definitely see that happen on several occasions in this specific arc.
0: I think it's going to be super hard to identify any of Sue's specific inner expectations because she speaks about her own personal needs so little. I think she does occasionally allude to them. And she does directly ask for a vacation repeatedly. So she definitely wants that. right? But- Everything is so focused around Reed and his insecurity around going. Like, remember all of that those years ago when we got our molecules got messed up. Well, there might be some bad things that came from
1: it. His inability to admit that there is a problem because he is, What while he is in the process of solving it, everything is fine, but the moment he hits a wall and goes like, ooh, maybe I won't be able to solve this, then, I mean, it all he comes tumbling. He yeah. he
0: completely shuts down. There is a lot of material to cover in this arc, and I'd like to focus on how Reed and Sue support each other as partners, and I think that we should point out examples where they succeed because they occasionally do succeed, in being good spouses to each other, but there are definitely instances where they are less successful and we should talk about how they could do better.
1: Yes, 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 but before we can do that, Lisa, it's time for words of affirmation. Na, 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 na,
0: na, 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 affirmations!
1: For first time listeners, uh, we should explain what the heck are these words of affirmation?
0: The words of affirmation are a way that we give back to our new and upgrading Patreon subscribers. These are affirmations that I collect and curate and use in my own daily life. This week, we're affirming just one glorious new patron and the perfect affirmation presented itself in Questlove's new Hulu documentary, Summer of Soul. If you have not seen it, please stream it. It is a treasure. It's very good. And this affirmation came from Stevie Wonder's lips right up to the universe's ears. Alexandra Cassano. You never allow your fear to put your dreams to sleep. When Stevie Wonder said that, I was so profoundly moved.
1: I mean, it is the type of line that cuts deep, right? It, it, You felt that line, you're like, oh, I need to fold this into my life immediately.
0: If you follow me on Twitter, I, I very rarely do this, but I put out like a little like, meh, I have feelings kind of tweet where I was just like, I wish that I could hard reset my career where I could just start over and um, I do wonder sometimes if my fear like just kind of lulls my hopes and dreams into a kind of stasis. And I am an obliger, so I do tend to put myself on the back burner. And I don't know, that, that quote just sent a chill out my spine. It was the
1: right quote at the right time, certainly for you. I think that Alexandra can take that quote and put it up on their mirror and appreciate it. But guess what? You can all put this quote on your mirror, even though we are dedicating this affirmation to Alexandra for joining us on the Patreon, which we deeply appreciate Thank and so allows for this podcast to continue. Uh, but all of you listening right now, like take that Stevie Wonder quote, watch the film, absorb it and, you know, percolate on it a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And we do understand that not everyone can afford to support us on Patreon. But if you want to support us in other ways, in free ways, please head on over to Apple Podcasts. Write us a nice five-star review. Those little tiny celebrations really do help us reach more listeners. And And, they fill
0: our love tanks, let's be real. And they
1: fill our love tanks for sure. Because guess what? Uh, As much as we like dishing out words of affirmation, we love receiving them even Mm -hmm. more. But we've had Reed and Sue trapped in the waiting room as if it was the negative zone itself. (laughs) And it's time to let them in. And let's get into session with Reed and Sue. And like Bilbo Baggins, we're going on an adventure. Our comic book focus this week is The Fantastic Four, Volume 4, Issues 1 through 16, published between November 2012 and January 2014. It's written by Matt Fraction, Christopher Sabella, and Carl Kessel. It's penciled by Mark Bagley, Raphael Ienko, and Joe Quinones. It's inked by Mark Farmer, Mark Morales, Andrew Hennessy, Joe Rubinstein, and Mike Allred. It's colored by Paul Mounts, Will Quintana, Edgar Delgado, Rain Barreto, Guru Effects, and Laura Allred. And the comic is lettered by Clayton Cowles, the only person who starts and ends this series.
0: Well, you know that old saying, Brad. Uh, the more cooks in the kitchen, the better. Is that is that what it y- is? Yes,
1: yes. We want more cooks <laughs> in that kitchen. Here's the plot synopsis taken off the back of the omnibus. When Reed and Sue decide the family needs to relax, they take Ben, Johnny, and the kids on a year-long vacation through all of infinite time and space and In the absence of Marvel's first family, a hand-picked substitute FF, Ant-Man, Medusa, She-Hulk, and the new Ms. Thing, stand ready to guard the Earth. What could possibly go wrong? As Reed Richards struggles to hide his true motivations, and the Future Foundation reacts to their mentor's replacements, Doom the Annihilating Conqueror rises. Can Reed cure the disease that's killing the team? I really wish Lee said he did not spoil Doom, the Annihilating Conqueror.
0: Yeah, though, if you saw Doom, the Annihilating Conqueror on the back of this book, you would definitely buy it,
1: because uh, yeah. it
0: sounds amazing. <laughs> and,
1: and it is, and it is, but it takes a long time before that even becomes a thing.
0: And then it lasts for like a second. Yeah,
1: it's like, what, two issues of it, the entire run?
0: It reminds me of like, uh, in Next Gen when Sir Patrick Stewart becomes a Borg. And you think that that's all that Next Gen is about, but it turns out it's just two episodes. Just two episodes. And it affects his character for the rest of his life.
1: Yeah, yeah, all the way to the new Picard series. And I like how they deal with it in Picard, but we're not here to talk about Star (laughs) Trek, Lisa. Why did you bring up Star Trek? You know how much I love it. Uh, So there's a lot to just get into with the first issue of these 18 issues. Uh, is there a particular point you want to start? Do we start at the beginning? Do we jump somewhere else?
0: Of course I want to start at the very beginning. I always want to start at the beginning, but I'm going to skip forward to right when the Fantastic Four come back from their visit to the Cretaceous period. On that adventure, Reed actually got injured. He was bitten by Moonboy's dinosaur. That yeah, they d- didn't de- ex-
1: devil dinosaur. That's
0: right, and it actually injures him, which is unusual with his powers because I guess he is so stretchy that when a dinosaur goes nom 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 on your arm.
1: I don't want to think about how (laughs) he slides in between the teeth like uh, some ginormous string of floss.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So when they return, he's kind of all up in his head and Franklin happened to have a bad dream the night before. And he uh, it has it's something related to his powers that he has these prophetic dreams.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure if the prophecy thing has occurred in the comics in the past, but like Franklin's abilities are immense. He can warp reality, he has psionic powers. And so I think these prophecies are an extension of that ability. There's a lot of drama, Lisa, right now around Franklin Richards because oh, really? for a long time he was believed to be a mutant, but in the era of Krakoa, they have taken his mutandom away from him. They, they've explained that his reality bending powers subconsciously caused him to believe he was a mutant when in effect he was not.
0: That is interesting because I presume that his powers came from his mom and his dad doing the nasty with their molecules all changed by the radiation, which I guess wouldn't mean that he's like a regular mutant.
1: Yeah, my favorite origin of Franklin occurs in Tom Scioli's Fantastic Four grand design, where Franklin is born with gills on his neck, and 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 Reed's like, uh oh, gills on his neck. He must be a mutant. Oh, funny! <laughs> Not that he's a product of Namor.
0: That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, I love we got a lot.
1: We should cover Grand Design at some point too.
0: But Franklin is going through this period of unrest and anxiety, and a lot of his fears rotate around his parents being in space and his being in space, and he he's having some separation anxiety from his parents, and uh, Val actually guilt trips Reed about leaving with Franklin in the state, saying like, you picked a great time to go dorking around the Cretaceous there, Dad, (laughs) which she is criticizing his performance as a parent, which of course cuts him to the quick because of his upholder tendency. And throughout
1: this series, she does it over and over again.
0: Mm Mm-hmm to a really interesting effect. What we don't get is Sue's take on the whole ordeal in this scene because she goes right into caretaker mode. They return, they smash the table, let's turn over the fantastic car, let's order takeout, right? She goes right into mom mode and she starts seeing that Franklin is not eating. Right. And she becomes concerned, so she turns to Reed to be like, hey, I'm really worried about Franklin. And Reed has that distant look in his eyes, and he just leaves without saying anything. anything. yeah, yeah. And so this is an example of her reaching out for support and him not hearing her. Yeah,
1: because he's in his head trying to solve the riddle of his body.
0: And of course he can't tell her what he's worried about until he has a solution to pair with it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, you know, th- w- there's there's also that moment in the, like, because the first page of the comic is uh, the nightmare, mm-hmm. saying, like, oh, a year from today, Franklin can see something horrible's about to happen. He wakes up, he's screaming, and Sue's not the first one to rush to his aid. It's the three mom-bots, right? And, like, like I, I, I know that the mom-bots have been in the comics in the past, and I would, I wish I had read those early creation issues, because I want to know about how Sue feels about the MomBots because clearly the MomBots are a Reed creation. Oop, just did a quick Google search. <laughs> MomBots first and only appearance in this issue. So yeah, I want to know more about the MomBots' origin.
0: It reminds me of uh, one of the early experiments in, an, in attachment theory with the wire mother and the mm, cloth mother, yeah. where like, the wire mother was so they put a bunch of monkeys, baby monkeys, in a cage, and they provided them with two mothers: a mother that was made of wire but provided food, and a mother that was made of cloth that didn't provide food but provided like physical comfort. And uh, the little monkeys preferred the cloth mother that was good for hugging over the wire mother that actually provided food. So I see these mom bots as just a bunch of wire mothers where they are—they look kind of like a spinoff of Herbie. They are hard. I'm sure they're really good at some of those mom tasks like Peanut butter sandwiches cutting the crust off and that kind of thing, but they're not gonna be sufficient when Franklin is freaking out over this dream. They're
1: terrifying. Yeah, they and, and storm why in. why
0: so many? <laughs> like the last thing you need, like where you're like, I don't feel safe to have a bunch of robots run in.
1: Yeah, and so like the impression I get is that this is something that Reed came up with because they're not always gonna be there for Franklin. Hey, this is an easy solution, wire mother it up. Great call, Lisa. I love that. Uh but also it 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 it, it indicates a little bit of that division between mom and dad that will occur throughout the rest of this book.
0: Yeah, because I'm sure that Sue wants to meet all of her obligations. She wants to be able to go on adventures to support her husband and save the world, And she also wants to be there for her kids, and I'm sure this is a workaround that Reed came up with. And
1: if I had a big issue with the Marvel Now run, and probably with the entire Fantastic Four comic book franchise, it's that too often the point of view is Mm. Reed's, and we understand everything that's going on in Reed's heads, and rarely do we get some perspective with Sue.
0: Right, we have to infer a lot of what she's thinking and feeling just because she doesn't talk
1: about it. Especially in this series.
0: Reed, when he walked away, immediately went to his think tank and he starts looking into what's going on with his injured arm. And from that very first journal entry, he makes some conclusions. Like he can see that it is unstable molecules affecting his powers. And at that point, at that very first journal entry, he goes. This could affect the other members of the Fantastic Four, and I don't want to put too fine a point on that because in future conversations yeah. with other members of the Fantastic Four, he does not mention this, or he or he tries to re-spin his narrative to say that he didn't come to that conclusion until later. But to
1: your point, he does not share his knowledge until he knows how to deal with that knowledge.
0: Yeah, so from that first journal entry, he comes up with the idea of like, okay, there's no answers in the known universe, so we have to go to unknown universes to fix this problem. And he starts redesigning the hyperdimensional warship, Pestilence, to travel time and space. The next morning, he goes to his wife and instead of saying, hey, I'm sick, I need to figure out how to fix it because it's going to affect you as well, he says, I've had this brilliant idea, I've turned the warship pestilence into a classroom and we can go travel time and space teaching the kids all of these wonderful valuable lessons firsthand and since we're going on a, a, a time machine, We can, they can only, we can like take a year, but only miss four minutes in our time.
1: Taking Reed Richards, this is the brilliance of Matt Fraction, Mm -hmm. and putting him on top of Clark Griswold from National Lampoon's Vacation (laughs) is a master stroke, it fits so well. I love this, Uh, but because it's a Fantastic Four comic and it is Reed Richards, there's like an extra layer of nefariousness or Uh, Not like not maliciousness. That nefariousness isn't the right word, but there is a unspoken darkness Mm -hmm. because he's hiding all this information to his Clark Griswold on vacation story.
0: And why does he feel like he needs to hide this information? Um, He refers back to. Val hurting his feelings back when he came back from the Cretaceous period. And so we have this quote um, from Reed. Val said something when we got home from yesterday and it stung. The kids needed us and we're gone. I was gone. Franklin was upset and, and I didn't wanna be gone anymore. So he feels like, oh, I can't go on adventures and be a good parent, so how do I do both? I bring my kids on the adventures with me. But
1: isn't that also a lie? hmm
0: absolutely yeah, it's yeah, a lie. Yeah,
1: yeah, and so he, he sells this trip to Sue, uh, but he, the ulterior motives of why he even wants the children there is you know, there it, it remain unspoken.
0: And the way he persuades her is he's like, the kids are going to be absolutely safe. This is going to be less action, more adventure, which is something he cannot promise, one. And he
1: knows where they're going and those places, as we see, are not safe.
0: And two, he goes under the guise of, I'm going because I feel like I need to be a better parent and that's, not the tr- that's just plain not the truth. Thus far though, it's only been a lie of omission. I think he does really believe that he can have this amazing educational family vacation And secretly solve this other problem with the unstable molecules before anybody else finds out. Ben, the questioner, is, of course, like going like, well, does it have to be a year? Isn't there another way we can do this? (laughs) And Sue goes like, hey, you're injured? Like, you know, like, Franklin is having issues? Like, can this, like, is this really a good time? And Reed looks at her in her face and goes like, trust me, I'm fine. And that is a lie, he is not fine. He thinks maybe he is fine in the future when he solves this problem, but he is not fine and he's lying to his wife.
1: I think in the first issue we also don't fully realize how dire the situation is for the entire family. Mm -hmm. As we go through the series, we learn that Reed knows that this is deadly to all of them and they are on a ticking clock. I don't think the reader at the end of this issue fully appreciates that ticking clock. Mm -hmm. And it's in the second issue that the Fantastic Four form their alternative FF, and Reed goes and finds Ant-Man, and Sue goes and finds Medusa, and the thing finds She-Hulk, and Johnny Storm asks his girlfriend to join (laughs) the Fantastic Four.
0: Because he was procrastinating, because Reed didn't provide him the proper accountability (laughs) for his obliger tendency, Um, But the scene I want to talk about in issue two is when Reed invites Ant-Man to shrink down to to gather some of his molecules for some of his experiments. And Ant-Man is going like,
1: Uh. don't
0: you want to tell Sue and Ben and Johnny that this could happen to them at any moment? And Reed goes like we have to, Scott, we have to keep this between ourselves at least until I can get my hands and head around the problem. So this is like the crux of Reed's issue is that he doesn't want to present a problem without also presenting the solution. And so we end up with this kind of Thing where he keeps kicking the can down the road of providing the entire truth to his family. And
1: I think he does this from a good place. I think in his head, he's like, I don't want to scare the kids. I don't want to scare the family. That's what
0: he says to Scott, which Scott, he's just lost his daughter, Cassie. right? And yeah, so he yeah, has yeah, a yeah, different yeah. perspective on what it, what it means to be truthful with your family. He's like, God God forbid you have a family that cares about you. But I don't think it's coming from a good place. I think that he is saying, I don't want to cause them to panic and worry. But in actuality, his ego is attached to knowing what to do at all times. So for him to say to his family, I have this problem and I don't know what the solution is, kind of, it, it, um, it's embarrassing or humiliating to him.
1: Uh, I mean, like I understand the impulse, and I, and I don't think you're wrong. I just think it's more complicated than saying like it's, he has no love in his heart for his family, it's not coming from a good place. I think, I think this is how he shows his love, this is who he is, yeah. this is how he communicates.
0: Yeah, he shows his love by being the hero. All of the time.
1: Right, right. And it always trips him up. And it takes, you know, throughout Fantastic Four's history, it takes uh, these tiny little decisions collapsing in on themselves for him to realize the error of his ways.
0: It's such a comic book thing and a life thing, I guess. But, But like a character always has to learn the exact same lesson yeah. over and over again. And uh, so, so even within the context of this arc, Reed learns the lesson of it's better to be truthful and yet he still doesn't tell the truth. And maybe it's extra offensive to me <laughs> because because of my obliger tendency where I say like, you owe it to everyone to be part of the team and work the problem together. And so to watch him repeatedly let his family down and let his wife down and let the team down. Yeah, it's gross. It hurts me. It hurts me.
1: And it's another one of these instances where you go like, oh, Reed. But I do think about you know, my own tendency And even though I'm aware of being a rebel and bucking against whatever's being asked of me, you know, I go like, okay, I want to change that. But Gretchen Rubin talks about how, like, that's your tendency. You're constantly in battle with who you are. Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's any story and I don't think we want any story to totally alter the tendency of Reed Richards.
0: Yeah, I I I agree with that.
1: What I want is for Reed and Sue to recognize each other's tendencies and to collaborate with those tendencies into a functioning unit. And my problem with the Fantastic Four is that so often the relationship is dysfunctional.
0: Right. Right. Like to me, I go like, I feel like this is a story about Reed realizing that he can't keep his weakness and his vulnerabilities separate from the family unit. But it turns out that in actuality, what this story is about is that the Fantastic Four is infected with these molecules that they need to get to the bottom of it. And once their powers are fixed, that's the story. And um that, that's just and, not how I read read comics.
1: Yeah, and you know, like that's that's the frustrating thing about this run is because then Fraction has to leave and what Kessel does and Sabella does, they just come in and just finish up the plot. They don't necessarily finish up the character work.
0: But to tie up the scene with Ant-Man, they end that conversation with Reed swearing Scott to absolute secrecy. So when yeah. they leave, and Scott is part <laughs> of this um, substitute Fantastic Four, he knows the stakes of their journey. Yeah,
1: which is why he's like really looking at his clock. Okay, it's only gonna be four minutes. Uh-oh, SpaghettiOs. Now what am I gonna do?
0: But it, it's interesting like to see um, Reed and his upholder tendency is to always like get vows from people he's always making Mm. people swear to him (laughs) because of course your word is the highest most valuable thing over what is actually good for the situation is like for scott to go to sue and go like hey something's up with Reed and he doesn't want to talk about it.
1: And the other thing about Reed is that he does all his planning from afar. So he says, we're going to go to these planets and they're not going to be dangerous, but he's in his Baxter building uh, on a computer when he's talking about that, when he's planning out the roadmap. Right. But then when they finally get to their first planet, Zeta Doradas, uh that planet is nothing like what he thought it was from the safety of his computer.
0: Because he like what he's presented to his family is we have all of these amazing places where we can provide all of these valuable educational lessons. and But that's not his first priority. That's not his, like, like yeah. of the two conflicting he- expectations, the internal expectation is, I am going to uh, right. solve this riddle of the molecules. And so he's trying to, like, backdoor his way into making each of these places a field trip. So his top
1: priority is clouding the the fake priority that he's selling.
0: Yeah, so he tells his family that he's going to this planet because he wants to take his kids somewhere where no one has been before. And they can have that kind of Neil Armstrong experience of being the first people to set foot on this planet. And that
1: moment between Val and Franklin while they hold hands and jump off the ship as siblings together is really beautiful. And
0: they almost, and Reed almost misses it because he's going like, hey, there's something about this plan that is not going perfectly. And he's looking at his dials and his wife goes like, hey, you're about to miss this enormous moment for our kids. Yeah. And, and thankfully, because Sue said something he was there as a parent in that second. But that,
1: but that again is like a really beautiful fraction moment mm-hmm. that you don't see too often in Fantastic Four comics. So I really, really love that. And then of course Zeta Doradus. Zeta Doradus. It's hard to say.
0: It's not real, so it's, it doesn't matter. Okay.
1: Uh, it turns out to be a, like a. Oh, they call it like a black anglerfish. Those like deep sea. Yeah, it's a lure. A, yeah. To
0: and this, so the planet traps them, and then this huge being is going to come and eat them. And um, luckily, thanks to mostly Sue and her uh, ability to create these force fields, they're safe, they're out of danger, and Sue tries to control her upholder husband, by creating a new rule. And Sue says, I'm I'm laying down a new mom rule. This is the last time something like that happens on our trip. Less action, more adventure, you said, and so it shall be. And Reed is like, absolutely. The safety of the children is paramount. And it actually also happens to be New Year's. And Ben Grimm, this entire time on the trip, has been in a little bit of a mood. Um, and we'll get to the bottom of that as the story unfolds, but like, Sue tries to make a New Year's resolution, and her New Year's resolution is here to a lovely, quiet year with no more surprises, which Reed replies, yes, yes, of course. A
1: great single panel from Bagley, the expression on Reed's face where it's sort of a smile, but it's like a smile like soaked in sadness and dread.
0: Yeah, because now he has this outer expectation of um, having this lovely, quiet year, but that that like expectation is a little bit nebulous because what does a lovely, quiet year really look like? And so I think that he thinks that he can provide a little bit more safety. He's like, oh, you know what, I should have looked ahead. There are things I should have anticipated. Um, so I do think I can do a better job of keeping my family safe and still keep my inner expectation hidden that, you know, his his little uh, molecule
1: secret. I, I look at that face and I also go, he's aware that eventually things are going to blow up.
0: To me, I, I think this is an example of he has a nebulous expectation mm having a good trip with his family family and an explicit expectation of finding a cure so when those two things come in conflict, he's going to tip towards the more explicit expectation.
1: The next issue, issue four, is critical for several reasons. It's a major retcon to the relationship of Sue and Reed. As we discussed in our last Fantastic Four episode on Civil War, originally, Reed and Sue had quite a large age gap between them, seven years. uh, When they first met, Reed was in college, he was 20 years old. And he was staying at this lady's house and her niece was 13 and that was Sue. Mm -hmm. And while we don't have issues with age gaps like that between Lisa and I, we have a five year age gap, the way it was presented in the comic books from the Stan Lee era Eh, there's like a power dynamic there that's pretty gross, right? Yeah. Uh, and and it doesn't sit well with a modern reader. It certainly didn't sit well with us. And I am happy to see a retcon occur here where they age Sue up and they're more peers. And this allows for a meet cute that is kind of adorable. Yeah. Uh, but of course the way it's being filtered in uh, through this issue is from a place where Reed is lying to Sue also. So it is a very weird retcon that I like, but also go, huh.
0: Yeah, this issue I think has a ton of red flags yeah. in it, <laughs> uh, both from the past and the present. They're on the planet of alith and when they arrive, the uh, natives there seem to recognize Sue and uh, want to worship right. Sue. Right. And uh, so it's a very warm and friendly planet.
1: Confusing, but okay, let's go with it.
0: And Reed is narrating, and we have a flashback of there they're getting to go on their first date and he feels weird because he knows he's like, just like this science nerd and this girl is so pretty and and so fun. And we have this really indicative quote where he says, the three hardest words for me have never been, I love you. That's easy. That, That was always easy for him to say to Sue. The three hardest words for him to say are, you were right. Yeah. So we find out that the reason this planet of Aelith wants to worship Sue is they take this family trip to this cave and there's a cave painting yeah. that is of the fantastic four and Val and Franklin. So it creates this sense of prophecy that they're going to be there. Yes.
1: I mean, Sue's like, wow, like she's in awe of this. Like, how can this be? This is amazing.
0: And so the natives go like, We would love to worship you and become and have you as our queen. And she actually considers it because she's an obliger tendency. <laughs> she sees this painting. She's being nice. She wants to be nice. And so he she, she allows them to have an evening of worshiping her and she comes back. Oh, and also Franklin has another prophetic dream where he... Uh, it feels like Reed is hiding something from the family. So that is in the back of her mind. So she goes, she has like this nice spa day of being worshipped, but then she returns to the trip and she goes like, it really didn't feel right for me to be taking advantage of these people. Something's
1: hinky here.
0: And by the way, like, I'm with Franklin. I think you're up to something. I'll apologize later if that doesn't, seem to be the truth, but for right now, I, am, I feel like our trust is being violated. And then we see that the reason these <laughs> prophetic cave paintings are there is because Reed took the time machine back in time and he painted those paintings himself. Ah! So he's trying to um, go like, look, we're meant to be on this journey.
1: So manipulative. So Right, and so what's, what's crazy about this to me is they are retconning this grooming situation that was perceived in their original relationship, and then he's doing this gross-ass manipulation.
0: Which he doesn't cop to, but he realizes he can't hide looking for this cure any longer, and the last page of this comic is him saying... Susan, you were right. We need to talk. So it ends with him saying those three little words he hates to say,
1: and it's delivered with a splash page. Right? Mm-hmm. It's this massive page, and it's it it that that period sounds like a dun dun dun.
0: And we don't get to see actually how that initial chat no. goes, but uh, issue five opens with Sue being. Furious. It's
1: so good. It's my favorite moment of the entire uh, series.
0: And uh, they are going to Rome uh, 44 BCE. The kids are gonna hang out with Julius Caesar and Reed and Sue are sending Ben and Johnny along with them, but they're staying behind to have a little mommy and daddy time, (laughs) which uh, of course Ben and Johnny interpret as Sex time, Um, which as far as we can tell, having spent this month or more with Reed and Sue, mommy-daddy time has never meant sex. No. Never. It always means that Reed has done something heinous and they need to talk about it. Reed has been trying to apologize in his own way and it's not working. And so he goes like, he tries to admonish her by her values by saying like, Would you rather be furious or (laughs) help me? And Sue and myself are super offended. And she goes like,
1: I can do both. Can I read her passage? Please do. So she delivers that I can do both. And then she says, how long did you think you could keep a secret this big from five people locked in a car together? You do that thing you always do. You behave like a human for once so well, it makes us forget what you really are. I can do both. I can be both.
0: So brutal, because I'm. Brutal. I'm sure she's having full-on flashbacks to Civil War. Yeah. Which took a long time to bounce back from. So Reed takes her to the lab to explain what's going on with his molecules, and here's where we see him try to. Sp- been the narrative rewrite sh- the narrative to show him more favorably so what he says to her is um initially he thought what was happening to his molecules was psychosomatic like he saw a dinosaur bite his arm and so my brain tells my arm that it's supposed to be injured,
1: which is nonsense because he's been shot by bullets on numerous occasions. He's pushed himself through keyholes. He's
0: doing the impossible with his body literally every day. But what I think is an even greater lie is that we know we were there for his initial journal entry. The word psychosomatic did not never come, up. come right. came up, and so he said. Then he started toying with the idea of a vacation because clearly I'm stressed. More lies. And he says, like, so the trip was my primary fo- focus, but of course I had nine other projects that distracted me. And he tries to, like, slough it off. as like, that's, that's me. You know, what are we going to do? I'm distractible. When we know that he came to space with one primary focus, which was finding this cure. He goes on to say that since he started his investigation, that it's these hostile cells and he's not exactly sure what these cells are going to do in his body because of the radiation. His condition is completely unprecedented, but I figured if I am going to die, at least I get to die surrounded by my family and my friends. So he's making a huge ploy for sympathy.
1: Yeah, but meanwhile, you will probably die right after me.
0: But he doesn't say that, he doesn't (laughs) say that. He just says that he's going to die. Right. And she goes like, uh, she forgives him and, and she kisses him and she says, we can't fight this and the truth at the same time. You don't get to decide to protect us from what scares you. What we fight, we fight together tell me this, you understand. And he says, this, I understand. So she thinks that he is just hiding the um, fact that he's sick. It's not until later when Sue is doing laundry and she notices that all of the socks are getting holes at the same time. And She muses aloud, like, why does this always happen? Like, now we need all new socks and we're out in space. And Reed goes, well, it makes sense because we bought all of the socks at the same time. So they're all going to wear out at the same time. And it's Sue who makes the mental connection of, oh, no, you have these hostile cells because you are exposed to this radiation I was exposed to this radiation, and my brother was exposed to this radiation, and our good friend Ben Grimm was exposed to this radiation all at the same time, so am I going to get sick? To which Reed replies, maybe. (laughs) I don't know, but probably. So... He, even in his big scene where he's like, I'm going to die surrounded by my family, he doesn't bring up that, yeah, you're probably going to die too, and Johnny and Ben.
1: The next two issues, six and seven, are a lot of fun. They're the Blastar issues, uh, where the family goes back to the beginning of the universe to witness the Big Bang, and they discover that Blastar has been placed there as a means of execution. Now, this is not necessarily the Blastar that they have met before. This is a Blastar actually from the far future sent to the very beginning. So when the family frees him and they inevitably fight, this Blastar has knowledge over them that they don't have. And so there's some fun there. Uh, Of course, they leave Blastar to explode in the Big Bang. He dies and then they go to the far future to the end of all things. In an effort to change what has just occurred,
0: I actually found these two issues super confusing. Everything dealing with the, you know, wibbly wobbly, timey wimey stuff. Yeah,
1: and it also, like, at one point, Blastar is left in the negative zone. And then when that happens, he pops up in the FF series simultaneously published along this one to battle it out with Scott Lang and his Fantastic Four.
0: What I think is most important to our conversation is now Sue is in on a Reed secret that yeah. the Fantastic Four are literally coming apart at the molecules, and she doesn't say anything.
1: Yeah, which feels weird.
0: To me, it's like... Now Reed has invited her into the closet with him and Mm. now they're both responsible for this terrible secret and Ben starts having symptoms. Yeah. So it starts out as like these terrible headaches and he is taking aspirin and nothing is working and in the battle with Blastar, he loses control of his powers and he explodes the entire ship. So they end up traveling, oh, using Franklin's powers, even though they're not fully developed and it practically kills him, to time travel to the end of the universe where there's this creature called Wythe, Y-T-H, and it's Wythe that tells Ben Grimm, hey, you gotta know this, you're sick, and Ben looks at Reed and Sue and goes like, you knew this? And they were like, yeah, we kind of, we weren't sure, (laughs) but mm, yeah, we had full knowledge of this. And uh, now three out of the four Fantastic Four knows this terrible secret, and who's gonna tell Johnny? Oh, God,
1: no, nobody, nobody is... There is a moment in this issue where Blastar is left in the negative zone, and there is a panel where he is screaming, Richards! (laughs) And that panel expresses my feelings about Reed Richards in this series. The next issue, issue eight, is Ben Grimm's Big Day. It's where he goes back in time in his human form and hangs out in Yancey Street and becomes their protector. It's a lot of fun, especially if you're a Thing fan, but it doesn't speak a lot to the Reed and Sue conversation, so we're going to pretty much Skip over it,
0: I do think it should be said that this his big day takes an extra sense of gravitas because this might very well be his last sure. day in his human form. And he starts trying to reconcile some things in his past. And the next issue, issue nine, he tell he tells the rest of the fantastic four that he feels like a prank he did in in his past actually caused Victor Von Doom to become Doctor Doom. So Reed goes like, I don't think that's the case. So let's travel back in time just as observers so you can observe the beginning of Doctor Doom and realize that you're actually not responsible for all of the evil that Doctor Doom has done.
1: It's a really good issue.
0: It's great. And it also proves that Victor Von Doom is not like Brad. What? He is not a rebel. Victor Von Doom is like Reed Richards, he's also an upholder.
1: What in this issue makes you say that?
0: Um, Well, it's something that Reed said actually, that Victor Von Doom planned to become Dr. Doom as a child after his mom died, and so his seemingly rebellious behavior in college was him upholding this inner expectation mm-hmm. to be able to speak to the dead, and so because Victor Von Doom was so determined, and he had this upholder nature, Doctor Doom was inevitable, regardless of yeah. whether Ben Grimm pulled this prank and dis- and destroyed his experiment, which caused the co- the scar on his face.
1: We've talked about covering villains on this show in the past. I think a series on Dr. Doom would be fascinating. He's absolutely one of my favorite characters. And maybe he's not a rebel. Uh, the The 60s version of Doom is definitely a rebel. Uh, but I, I, I'd like to return to this conversation at some point.
0: Reed also admonishes... Uh, Dr. Doom for being a terrible scientist for not checking his work (laughs) first before doing the experiment which I think is like I, I love that he's like Not only is he this (laughs) evil supervillain, but he's also a little sloppy. Yeah, he's a bad
1: scientist. (laughs) But Reed has nothing to brag about because he's a terrible husband and father, right? That's right. right. So the next issue, issue 10, starts off in Philadelphia, 1776. And the gang is doing another field trip to witness history come alive. Unfortunately, Sue her flesh is showing.
0: She's gone full Swiss cheese. So now her powers are visibly out of control. And Val and Franklin and Johnny are like, what is happening? And so they're like, family, we have to talk. And they sit Johnny down in between (laughs) Franklin and Val to say like, uh, something's going awry with the Fantastic Four. Um, There is this invading molecule and we're coming apart at the seams and Johnny is like, what am I doing sitting with the kids? How come I'm finding this out now? And Val is like, Why was this a secret? The only reason you're telling us is because mom's blue panties are showing (laughs) through her clothes. And then behind that is just flesh.
1: That is a weird choice. Also, Mark Bagley illustrating a strip of panty.
0: It's only, it took me three reads to notice that. I
1: don't like it. (laughs) But, But then, you know, Reed has another revelation. He's been still withholding truths. He's
0: like, wait, there's more. Um, I've been studying this and it looks like we're actually being attacked, that these are invading cells. And now that I'm out of options, let's have a family brainstorm sesh to figure out what exactly is going on. And Val from the other room is like, scrolls is obviously scrolls.
1: And she's sort of right because they are in the presence of scrolls. That Ben Franklin we saw on page one is a scroll.
0: But Johnny doesn't care about that, because Johnny is just reeling from this news that was withheld from him, and he's like, you should have, Sue, you're my sister, you should have told me, you should have trusted me, I I died for this family, which I need context for.
1: In the Jonathan Hickman run, he died for this family, okay. but then he came back, don't worry.
0: Okay, good. And he says something to Sue that I think is the meanest... Truest thing (laughs) that's ever been said. And he says to Sue, you're treating me the way that he treats you. So what he's implying is like, you are treating me like a child who cannot handle the entire truth. To me, this indicates that the jig is up. Like this charade that they are a marriage and a team of equals in Reed's eyes, is over, he thinks of himself as the team leader in his family and in his marriage, which is a terrible way to treat your spouse and humiliating to Sue. I'm sure that her little brother can see that.
1: Yeah, it's an ugly moment and a moment that doesn't actually get reconciled in the rest of this book because it gets so wrapped up in the plot stuff and Matt Fraction goes away. He doesn't really conclude the emotional chasm. The way Carl Kessel concludes it is, well, we figured out what the original problem was that caused this molecular dysfunction. We've solved that and now we're good.
0: I feel like this run does more to address the emotional distance that's created between Reed and Val than it ever does these emotional issues between Reed and Sue. Because from this point on, Val is mad at Reed in every single issue. She feels so utterly betrayed and excluded. I think because he does try to create this... Sense with his kids that, hey, we're all just working the problem together. We're all peers. And she's
1: crazy smart, and she does help out. She does solve solutions. She
0: saves the day on multiple occasions in this run. And it's not until the very last issue where they're back with the Future Foundation and everybody's having this, Barbecue to co- commemorate Johnny's the future Johnny killing himself for yeah, yeah, the and, team,
1: and that segment is, that actually introduces another writer into the storyline. Lee Alred was doing scripting duties with Carl Kessel in those final issues of FF.
0: Yeah, so we get um, so everybody's having this barbecue, and Val is sitting alone in her room, going like, "I already live in a circus." like, if I'm already in a circus, what what am I supposed to run away to? And Anome is one of her friends uh, from the school, and she's from Wakanda, and she says, like, well, maybe people who are in circuses, children who are in circuses, just don't run away. They just stay. And uh, Val is like, well, that's ridiculous. And then they just start laughing, and they rejoin the party. So, like, I I think that it's odd to have this semi-emotional closure for the child, but still, Sue just has to keep soldiering on for the sake of everybody.
1: And the emotions of this storyline are carried on in James Robinson's follow-up series that he does with, I think, artist Leonard Kirk. And it's been forever since I've read those. And the tension is still there very much so within Reed and Sue. And I think what I'm going to do is end up reading those with the hope that all the stuff that gets stirred up in this hornet's nest between them is resolved in some fashion. (laughs) It's just such a weird thing. It's a real bummer that Matt Fraction didn't conclude it here.
0: Well, I I mean, we had this discussion after Civil War where you go like, well, the stakes are so much higher for them, and for them to argue over Civil War is like us arguing over the laundry or whatever.
1: And that's true.
0: But like these things that Reed has done in both of these series, to me, are like you know, relationship ending betrayal events.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's rough. Like I got done with this book and it did not leave me feeling like great about them. But thankfully I have that 40th anniversary wedding one shot that we (laughs) did for episode two of our Fantastic Four conversation, which shows that they work through all these things. So that issue there, it like is forever my hope. Okay. <laughs> but then narratively, I do like how this poisoned relationship that Sue and Reed have currently does taint, as you're saying, his relationship with his daughter. And that climaxes in issue 10 as a callback to the very first Fantastic Four issue from 1961 where how does Reed solve these scrawls within our founding fathers? He turns those scrawls into cows, yet again, an old trick. And Val's like, that's monstrous.
0: I feel like from this point on, the childhood rose-colored glasses Val once had for her father Mm. are now off. And she is not shy about telling her father when she thinks that he's wrong. And even Ben Grimm, to a certain point, could no longer keep that up, that questioning all of the time. And his wife has been now, you know, beaten into submission. But, like, Reed loved the idea of being the adored father so much. And when his brilliant genius daughter is calling him on his BS, it kills him.
1: And it's now a dynamic, a new dynamic that didn't previously exist within the family. And I think if there was hope for Sue and Reed, which we know that there is hope for Sue and Reed, the 40th wedding anniversary special, I think it rests with Val.
0: Yes, because the very next issue opens with Reed trying one of the same tactics he used on Sue in one of the previous issues. Remember, um, I can't remember exactly this. Oh, it was the, are you going to be furious with me or are you going to help me?
1: And Sue's
0: reply to that is, well, I can do both. I can be furious with you and help you. So he opens the next issue with Val, close yourself into in her bedroom, like a real teenage girl, and he's knocking on the door saying like, I really need, like, I understand that you're mad, but I really need your big, huge genius brain to help me find out what's going on with our molecules. And she's like, screw you, too bad. And he goes like, well, what if I let you decide (laughs) what the next move is? which is something he never tried with Sue, as far as I know. And uh, Val goes like, it's my decision and solely my decision? And he says yes. And then they end up going to Celeritus, which is this super advanced civilization, but she chooses to go in the distant future. So not only do they have the technology, but they have the time to figure out exactly what the problem is. And guess what? We finally get some progress on what this molecule issue is.
1: And it's not scrolls.
0: Yeah, but what I think happened is Reed
1: thought thought it was was scrolls. scrolls.
0: And that's why they were in Philadelphia 1776, where there just happened to be a scroll.
1: Right. Which is why their trip to Solaritus is so crucial, because it's the first time that Reed did not mark it on the map. This is Val's trip.
0: And she goes right into research mode. She's fully bossing people around and getting things done. But then, of course, everything has to be interrupted by some kooky villain. In this case, it's the preservation front, and they have a bad case of toxic nostalgia. And what happens in the next two issues isn't necessarily important relationship-wise. Plot-wise, everybody's symptoms are getting worse. Like, literally, Ben has this, like, psoriasis where, like, sheets of rock are falling, and there's just, like, like, meatloaf underneath. It's gross. And, oh, we also get... Uh, a second Johnny, a Johnny from the future comes in is like, I'm from the future and I can't tell you anything because of paradoxes and whatnot.
1: Although we learn in issue 13, Lisa, that he's not only from the future, he's from another dimension. So he's not even our Johnny Storm. He's a totally different Johnny Storm. And issue 13 is such a baffling read.
0: Especially like on the first watch because- in this alternate dimension, there's like Ant-Man, oh, it's and he the same looks setup. The same. It's
1: the exact same setup. Ant Man's team is saying goodbye to Reed and the Fantastic Four. And when they go through the portal, instead of nothing happening and then going like, oh no, what are we gonna do? Uh people come out of the portal, and those people are Doctor Doom, Kang, and Annihilus. In this dimension, these three supervillains have teamed up and are going to go full doomsday on this version of the Fantastic Four.
0: But in this version of the Fantastic Four, Reed isn't Reed for some reason. He's yeah. Stevenson's Storm. Right. And uh, Ben Grimm is his brother-in-law, Yeah. and Sue is, uh, I don't remember what her last name is, but she, i guess grim i i don't know it's all it's all weird and it like when i first read it i had no idea what was happening
1: yeah, and so this is when Carl kessel fully takes over on the book and just hits fast forward on plot mechanics and so like this issue in particular is very herky jerky i think it settles out in the next issue and in the final issue but yeah when you get to this one i think it's And it's, I mean, it is purposefully confusing.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, because in issue 14, we find out that it's this version of the Fantastic Four that caused our Fantastic Four's powers to go all messed up because they knew because of another alternate dimension, Fantastic Four, that they were going to lose their powers. So they took pieces of their powers and shot them up into the sky and uh, to over to, the I guess, the adjacent universe. I, I mean, And the, yeah. they went into our Fantastic Four and they went into, like, system overload.
1: And that's because they detonated that chronal bomb? And I guess that's what shot them over into the other universe? Uh,
0: no, yeah, yeah, they... They shot the signal flare and before the bomb, but the bomb is the thing that takes th- away their powers. No, he
1: blows up the bomb. Uh-huh. And they do it simultaneously, because he goes like, Johnny, go, blow it up. And then Johnny blows it up as they shoot. So I feel like there's some sort of connection there.
0: Um, like, this is the kind of comic book stuff that I don't feel is so important to really fully understand. But but
1: like the, the, the basic gist that you really need to know is that this has been happening throughout the multiverse. So each Fantastic Four in every dimension is cosmically screwing over their neighbor.
0: Exactly. And we actually find out at the end of this series that apparently our Fantastic Four has been so their DNA has been so scarred (laughs) by um, the entire ordeal that when Kang and Annihilus and Doctor Doom team up in our universe, they can't shoot up their powers into the sky anymore. And so I guess we're just screwed, you guys.
1: Or they'll find something else out and they'll save the day that way, as they are wont to do. And really what Kessel is doing is freeing these characters from this chain of events, right? So he's giving them free will back.
0: I just love that every other iteration of the Fantastic Four up until that point was fully ready and willing to totally screw over and perhaps kill their doppelganger (laughs) brother from another doppelganger mother.
1: As Stevenson Storm says, is he has confidence in that there are other versions, like whatever versions out there of us, they're good, they'll deal.
0: But there's like this thing that happens later where they go through the like final power switch back and Steve Stevenson, looks at our Fantastic Four and goes, oh, they're dead. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that was a worthy sacrifice. <laughs> and then he tries to go on with his day. Yeah, well, they were dead for like a second. They came back minutes later, but still. Yeah, okay,
1: yes. I mean, you know, that, that storm, that version of Reed is not a good dude.
0: Yeah, but you know what? Later, future Johnny goes back to uh, because of timeline reasons, to create a distraction that that uh, saves everybody, but in doing so, he knowingly kills himself and what does our Reed say? Our Reed goes like worthy sacrifice Uh, and it's the kids who go like we should do something to kind of memorialize him and he's like let's have a barbecue Uh, Uh,
1: (laughs) You know Reed can compartmentalize his emotions that's what he does.
0: He's a monster Brad. Uh,
1: Okay fine
0: (laughs) We've kind of skipped to the end and this episode is long enough. There is like one of other instance that I think perfectly typifies Sue's place in this marriage. They are in this alternate universe. She has used up the last of her misfunctioning powers, and she can't force field anymore, and she pulls out this whistle that Medusa gave her, oh, and man, she yeah. blows the whistle, and Lockjaw shows right. up. And the Lockjaw is able to take the kids back home where they should have been 12 issues ago.
1: I mean, yeah, I was very disappointed when Val and Franklin are removed from this story you know the reason is because it's a different dimension and it's a dimension that's about to have its own apocalypse, so it's not their home and they can't die, not in their home so it's i like I don't see them having done that if this situation was going down in their dimension. I think because it's in a different dimension, that's why sh- Sue did it.
0: Val is really angry that yeah. she's being sent away, and uh she goes like, well, clearly, nobody in this universe cares about us, and she stomps off, and Sue goes like. Worst vacation ever. <laughs> and she uses the lasty last bit of her powers to save Johnny, who whose powers are misfunctioning so he's fully both fully on fire and bleeding out. So she saves his life while the other dudes just stand by, able to do nothing. And then uh, she lays her head on Reed's chest And Reed goes, get some rest, honey. You look tired. And then we cut to Sue, and she's completely invisible. All you can see is a pair of floating goggles. She literally spends every last ounce to keep this family together while everybody just doesn't thank her.
1: Then back home, barbecue. Yeah,
0: isn't that fun? (laughs) The end. And we get this really sweet moment between... Uatu the watcher and his pregnant wife Ulana who goes like isn't it nice that human nature is to come together and have these beautiful moments together watching their lives intersect.
1: Yeah, and the final image of the Fantastic Family is one of smiles. And this Marvel Now iteration just does not want to leave the reader thinking like there is a severed relationship there. Even though we don't get that resolution, this final page shows us that they will get to that 40th anniversary special.
0: I am afraid that over the course of this episode, I sound like I'm making a case against Reed Richards, (laughs) and I kind of am, but like we saw Reed and Sue in two crisis events back to back. And if you even took snapshots of Brad and my relationship, only on the most stressful days, where we both worked a full day, had a bad day at work, and then we're trying to record past 8.31 p.m., people would look at our relationship and go, like, these people do not see nor appreciate each other.
1: Well, do you remember, like, six months ago, we had, like, a month a uh, stretch where we were getting on each other's nerves pretty easily. Mm, yeah. And you got to a point where you said, like, are we having a thing? Is something <laughs> wrong? And I, you know, and then I countered balance, like, no, nothing's wrong. We're just irritable bastards. Yeah. And we, you know, we got through that month. It was a very stressful month, work and blah, 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 blah. And it it strained the relationship for a little bit. So when you have like especially with a a superhero team, when you have one crisis after another, you know, any internal stresses are only going to be, you know, elevated, heightened.
0: And everything that Reed is doing is not intended to be offensive. Like, he's not lying to have, like, I do think that it's an ego issue, but I don't think he's lying to have won over on his wife. Yeah. I don't I don't think that there's anything about it that's, like, I don't think that impetus makes him a bad person. What I think is he is a little bit of a scared little boy who's got the hot chick and feels, and, and this was referred to also in that episode where we got the flashback to, to Aunt Mary's, where he goes like, I... Don't Like, I love this girl, and I don't know exactly why she likes me and what I need to do to keep her. And I feel like somewhere along the line, he just got the impression that he had to be perfect. And that he had to be right all of the time, and that's what makes him so unbelievably sexy to Sue Storm.
1: We talked about this the other day, and you brought up the point that Reed has been trying to make up for the ultimate sin of turning his friends and family into these cosmic monsters because he did that initial miscalculation. And ever since then, he's sort of been trying to solve problems before they occur.
0: Or like, he did have one kind of spin on that. So the worst thing for an Upholder, obviously, is to be seen making a mistake. But in that same instance where he's like, oh, damn it, Ben Grimm was correct. The cosmic rays have affected our DNA irrevocably. But I can turn this around and we can start this super rad superhero group. Right, And everybody was happy and relieved and on board and filled with a sense of purpose. And I think that he's just trying to recreate that kind Mm, of thing mm. with everything that's going wrong. Yeah. I think that's
1: good. I think that's good.
0: So he never wants to present a problem without going like, but this is actually an opportunity. Like some problems are just problems, Reed Richards. And that's life.
1: I think we also do have to recognize that we are talking about this couple through four particular storylines that we, for the most part, arbitrarily decided where they were going (laughs) to fall. Like if, our episode four was the 40th wedding anniversary episode. I think we would leave this couple feeling a lot stronger about them than leaving them here in this unresolved uh, fight.
0: Well, it's it's kind of funny because when we initially programmed this episode, we had not read or reread this series. So initially I was like, well, we can't do just these six issues because we have to resolve... This thing between Reed and Sue, Reed is repeatedly hiding information and the real story for me of this run is going to be how does Reed learn the lesson of you can't operate on a need to know basis with your superhero team, wife, co-parent, yeah. you know, and then, uh, uh, so we say on our last episode, like we actually have to do the whole run and then we read the the rest of the run and we discover, oh, actually Reed hasn't learned anything. This is not resolved. But that's also kind of life, right? Because even when we're talking about our relationship, it really is two people who love each other very much who are offending each other in the same four ways every other week, you know? It's just like, um, I think that you know, just like our tendencies, our natures and our little quirks of our nature, like, can be transcended. Like, we can all do better every once in a while. But if we get lax and tired or stressed, we're going to do the, 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 the thing that comes naturally, which isn't always the best thing to do, you know?
1: Yeah, and we've proven that uh, over and over again in our relationship. And I come away from these four episodes uh, more in love with the Fantastic Four than I was before. That's always the goal. I still like Reed and Sue as a couple. Uh, You know, this, like, I I wish they would evolve beyond the same kinds of arguments. I'd like to, I prefer them when they are functioning better than what you see in Civil War and this run. Uh, But at the same time, like I also appreciate how Reed and Sue have to keep learning these things about each other.
0: What I wish for this couple is for them to have the opportunity, like Johnny gave them momentarily, even though he was doing it in kind of a shocking, defensive way, is to have how they sound reflected back to themselves. Mm. Because I think that if Reed saw himself Ignoring Sue, he would be mortified.
1: Yes, I agree.
0: And I think that if he knew that other people saw him, like Johnny, like Scott Lang, withholding information on a repeated basis, like he would stop. Yeah, well, and, and he would wonder like, is am I doing the right thing?
1: It's why I think Val is so important in this equation, mm-hmm. right? And I think their new role as parents forces them to confront themselves as a couple as yeah. well, uh, and, and that's why this era in particular of the Fantastic Four is my most favorite era.
0: So, is there anything over the course of this episode, or all four episodes, that you've learned from uh, the Fantastic Four from? Sue and Reed or from our love expert Gretchen Rubin that you're going to try to fold into our lives as a married couple?
1: Well, I think that what you see here is the importance of equality mm. uh, in a relationship and an and, and equality as perceived by the people in that relationship, right? So I feel like there are times where Reed does not behave like an equal to Sue. I think he would tell people that he's an equal to Sue, but he does not always behave like an equal to Sue. And I think when you find yourself acting above your partner, you are in a danger zone. And I have certainly done that in our relationship, and I've had to be knocked down to eye level.
0: I think the one thing that Reed does that you also do is to set a plan in motion before consulting me.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true, but that's not even necessarily, like, okay, I'm gonna cop to that, yeah, that's true. But what I was really thinking about was how often uh, I speak from a place of authority that is imaginary, mm-hmm. right? Like, I I know more about comics or movies or whatever. And I and, and this doesn't even necessarily apply to our relationship, but just in an av- everyday Twitter exchange, sometimes you can fire back on Twitter and, and you come from like, I know better than this guy. And like, no, Lisa, you got it wrong. I understand Loki better than you. And then you'll go like, hold up. No, you missed this, this, and this. And I'm like, <laughs> oh yeah, huh. That's... Like, I I think sometimes you get a little too big for your britches.
0: Yeah, I do think that sometimes there's too much emphasis in pop culture conversation about uh, the, like, content. Like, because I I can name more bullet points about this, like, fandom. Therefore, I'm a better, more knowledgeable fan than you. Where I think a lot of the time, a lot of insight can be found by just... Having a different perspective, even if you don't have if even if you can't name five spawn villains or whatever. (laughs) Sure.
1: But what I'm saying is that, you know, I don't have the intellect of Reed Richards, but I do have a boatload of trivia knowledge. (laughs) And I think both of us put a lot of value on that knowledge that is actually not valuable in a relationship sense, not even a romantic relationship sense, but in a human relationship sense. So in covering Fantastic Four of these last four episodes, I do recognize Reed's bad habits in myself and you were talking about how you wish Reed could see what he is doing, how he's how he is behaving. And you know what, I wish he could too, but I can observe him mm-hmm. and I can learn from him. So yay, but Lisa, now it's your turn. What are you pulling from our Fantastic Four series and our relationship with Gretchen Rubin?
0: Well, thinking and meditating a lot on upholders and obligers, I realized that while I am an obliger, I do have a lot of upholder tendencies. And I do love to have a rule to default to. And I often try to pin you down into a <laughs> vow or a promise. And, um, and you are a rebel. And therefore, you are constantly squirming out of it. Um, but I do need to remind myself, like, I can't hold you to the same structures I want to hold myself you know, because yeah. sometimes I feel like even because I'm an obliger, I feel like having another t- person tip up holder with me will somehow make me like help me cling to my ideals a little bit better. If I had a buddy to, you know, keep a calendar with me or go on a run with me, like those kinds of things that I just I can't really make you want to do with me. Sure. Um, Then I also, a lesson that I've learned from Reed is like when you find yourself acting in a way that you go, like, well, I'm protecting their feelings. Yeah. Or I'm protecting, like, oh, I'm sparing us a fight now. Like, uh, it's a time to look in a in the mirror and go like, who am I actually protecting?
1: Yeah, and this happens all the time in comic book relationships and in fictional relationships, and I'm sure in real relationships. But don't hide things.
0: Mm, uh, don't yeah. don't hide things. It's it's hard because uh, especially when you're in a stressful situation where you're like, I've got to act now, and you have like one of those pop ups, like an emotional pop up, like that hurt my feelings, or like uh like a I want to argue about that later, but I'm going to put a pin in it because action has to happen now.
1: Like Yeah, but don't hide like oh, we owe these bills to these people. Oh, I forgot to pay this tax thing. Yeah. Though like those are the things that are equivalent to our life uh that Reed's hiding in his life. You know, like or if you know, uh, I, if, if my uh, lymph nodes pop up, uh, I have my own molecular problem. <laughs> don't don't mask that to spare your loved one.
0: That is one way that Brad and I are very different. Because Brad, if he's having some kind of ailment, he'll wait until it's really irritating him <laughs> to say something. Where if I think I might have a symptom tomorrow, I'm spitballing it about, uh, spitballing about it today. Like, hmm, I think I might. Be getting a cold. What do you think of that? And Brad's like, Go to the doctor. (laughs) Why are we even talking about this? From Sue, I feel like I've learned that to ask for what I need directly, like don't say it like it's a joke. Don't toss it off like saying things like, you know, Whew, I need a vacation, like it's like your little catchphrase. Yeah, dense
1: like, Reed is not going to pick up on that.
0: Grab that man <laughs> by his stretchy ears and look <laughs> deep into his eyes and say, "Like, let's get our schedules together because I need a week with you." You know? Yeah. Yeah, and, and of course, one more tip for Reed because I can't, I can't let this go, is actively listen. Uh, People ask for, even though Sue isn't being the most direct she could be, she is saying her needs. And she repeats them like an old refrain. So it's like, dude, if she's singing that song all of the time listen.
1: Well, I hope Reed and Sue have been listening to our Fantastic Four series because I think we've given them enough to rubinate on and to bring to their relationship and help them get through these rocky patches.
0: And rocky patches are inevitable. Yes. And so it's always good to remind yourself of your principles and um, remind yourself that you have plenty of tools in your tool belts to restore, maintain, and make your relationship even better.
1: Yeah. And that is going to do it for our Fantastic Four series, Lisa. Yes. I've had a blast traveling with the family Fantastic, and I have a feeling that we will be returning to them in the future. I don't want to let go of Reed or Sue or Johnny or Ben or Val or Franklin, frankly. Yeah. But we must move on. And for next episode, we're going to do another one-off episode. A
0: one-pod stand.
1: Yes, a one-pod stand similar to what we did with Vision and Virginia and Falcon and Winter Soldier tying into the latest Disney Plus series, Loki. We are going to cover Loki and Loki as seen in Kieran Gillen's Journey into Mystery. I'm still figuring out what exact issues we're going to cover. I've read the entire thing, and I don't want to do another like, Lisa, you got to read 18 issues. (laughs) Uh, And so I'm trying to find like the perfect moment in that series that would make a great one pod stand. Uh, Stay tuned to our socials, and uh, that's where you'll find like the, the details. I'll have it all ironed out in the next day or two.
0: Which is great, because I have not selected who our love expert is going to be. Fabulous. For that one pod stand. So if you have, if you've come across a relationship article, it can even be something really kooky that you think you'd like the Gullickson's to take a look at and talk about, please send it our way.
1: Yeah, we love listener suggestions. We
0: love giving and receiving, because you know what... Our next episode number is Brad.
1: (gasps) Episode 69. 69,
0: dudes! Up top. (laughs) Okay, Brad. We gotta go, because I've booked us a cruise on the USS Pestilence.
1: That seems weird to me, but I don't (laughs) think you'd do that, but okay, the Pestilence. Let's get aboard.
0: Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you?
1: You can find me on all social medias, at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men Fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their Words of affirmation to you.
0: I'm always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. We are available. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes.
1: If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, Ooh. you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast.
0: You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod.
1: So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full.
0: And your psychic rapport open.
1: Doopy doopy.
0: I think PG-13 can include.
1: Cowboys in bed? Yeah, I think so. Okay. (laughs) Just. (laughs) I can't move on from that. You have to. No.